Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where I'm on a mission to help you unleash your full potential. Today's guest is Dave Schroeder, a senior partner at Full Circle Group with over 30 years of experience in leadership development with some of the biggest companies in the world. Dave has a PhD in organizational behavior and is an expert at helping leaders make changes that actually last. And that's exactly what we'll talk about today. How to move from reactive to creative leadership in your life how to keep evolving and keep growing as a person until the day that you die. And most importantly, how to make a lasting impact on those around you. So let's dive right in. And I'm super excited to have you. I told you, you know, before we started recording this, there's been a lot of people around me in my circles, including my mm -hmm. dad, that, that have been raving about your work and your colleagues' work. So naturally, I'm just super curious to finally also, you know, get a glimpse of that um, on the show. And I want to sort of lay the groundwork for this conversation um, with this idea that you know, becoming a better leader is all of, above all really an internal job of, of going inwards and leading ourselves. So can you talk to us about that, about really this inward journey of becoming a leader? Mm. There really is an inner game. You know, thinking about an inner game and an outer game is helpful because a lot of, um, a lot of what we think of that makes leaders effective in terms of the standard leadership development programs is skills, skill building and, you know, understanding how to do strategy work and understanding organizational dynamics. And all of that is absolutely important. That's the outer game. The inner game is, is uh, much more about your understanding of your deep purpose uh, in this world, at your work, with the people that you're working with, it's about choosing how you want to show up in the world, but you know, very specifically in every conversation, in every meeting, in every decision, there's a perspective that we get to choose inside us to be of service, uh, to come from love, to come from respect and dignity for others, to come from a stance of interbeing, if you will, where we're all connected. Connected, to acknowledge that that's true is one inner perspective. Uh, another one, probably more common, unfortunately, is that, that you know, it's a fear-based inner perspective, that I have something to lose and I've got to be careful and cautious and in some ways play the game of not to lose, right? <laughs> so to get, to get through it uh, every day, just not letting things slide where I don't want them to go which might mean toward some sort of a sense of failure, a sense of embarrassment, a sense of looking vulnerable. So if you wanted to think of the inner game as, you know, we'll use the word play, playing not to lose versus playing to win, but win being going as far as I can with all that I've got in order to serve the biggest cause that I feel drawn to. So playing not to lose, it's kind of the ego game. Playing to win is the game of service and creativity. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about it from a leadership perspective, but you could talk about it from a human perspective. You don't have to be in a role of a leader in an organization to be becoming more conscious of these two inner games. You know, I love that because it really is this intention that we bring to our lives. Like you say, right? You don't have to be a formal leader in position, you know, to lead your life with purpose, to lead your life with authenticity, to lead your life focused on, like you say, becoming the best you can be rather than you know, trying to protect your ego, right? Exactly. And one of the most interesting things about what you've just said is that 
that when we set the intention, we in some ways are choosing uh, the way in which we're going to perceive the world. We perceive the world through our intention that we set inside, right? So it's, it's almost like putting on a different pair of glasses when I set a different intention. Now all, all of a sudden things become clear to me that when I had my other intention on, I don't see. So I start to see, if I, if I set the intention to be of service to the world, to my organization, to the people I'm leading, you know, with my highest purpose to bring out the best in them, to let them be their best self, I'm gonna see opportunities all over the place to do that. If I set my intention to be the one who is served rather than be the one serving, I'm gonna see all kinds of ways to get people to do what I want them to do in order to help me get my goals met. You see the difference? And, and so anytime we put on another set of lenses to the way we see the world, new things show up that we didn't see before. And that's, that's the awesome thing about setting an intention. I mean, I think some people think that, that the idea of even a daily discipline of setting my intention in the morning before I interact with anyone is just kind of like, yeah, woo woo stuff. You know, it comes out of Southern California and I should light some incense or something, you know, sort of make fun of it. Uh, I mean, the neuroscience is showing us that when we activate those particular neural networks by choosing an intention, that all kinds of things follow from that choice that changes the way we interact with everyone. Oh, and not only that, here's, a, here's another cool thing about that. A good friend of mine, a guy named Kurt Thompson, is an interpersonal neuro biologist and a psychiatrist yeah um and uh, he is uh he's like dan siegel who was also in that same field uh, he's convinced that there is no such thing as a single separate human brain that all of our brains are always interacting with one another by the electromechanical or electro um yeah mechanical radiation that they're emitting and so what ends up happening is is that when I set an intention and I walk into a meeting with that intention, it literally, almost before I say anything, I influence the thinking patterns of everyone else in the room and then me. And wow, what, a, what an awesome, I mean, you could think of it as a superpower, <laughs> but it's, it's just the way things work, right? So yeah, to begin to understand how it's all put together and then align myself with the way reality is, uh, this is, I think, one of the keys to effectiveness as a leader. Yeah, you know, this concept of like emotional contagion and how we affect other people on a, on a deep emotional level is so interesting to me. And I think everybody of our listeners have has had this experience before, right? You walk in a room and there's this person with just the biggest grimace, like they're angry, they're sad, they're frustrated, right? And it pulls you down, like before you can even consciously register it, right? I think that's the difficult part that like you don't even consciously notice it, but your, your face just kind of drops and you just kind of feel your energy sink when you're around those people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the good news is, and as you probably know, because you study con uh, positive psychology, there was some research that I uh, recently came across where they were studying the degree of penetration of social networks of positive comments versus negative comments. And you can correct me if I get the numbers wrong, but um, what I heard was that a negative comment will penetrate a social network on average two nodes, like Somebody will say it to someone who will say it to someone else, and it sort of dies there. Wow, yeah. Positive comments penetrate a social network by three nodes or more. So there's actually uh, more influence of our positive energy 
in the world, which is great news because yes. especially when you read the papers today and when you read about how social media has been abused by trolls and, you know, election hackers and all that, you know, you think, oh my gosh, the negativity is going to run away with this world. But I actually don't believe that. I think that there's a, there's a deeper superstructure to the way things are put together that has a bias toward the positive. Uh, and so, you know, in the end, I think love wins. But it's hard to remember that, right? When we're going through the day to day and when you walk into that very meeting you just talked about and there's that person with their arms crossed and their frown on their face and you think, oh boy, here we go. Yeah, you know, this is so interesting. I actually haven't heard about that study yet, but it is so cool and such a beautiful insight that like the the way that you show up has such a large effect, right? Because it, it becomes this ripple effect. Like you say, three notes further down. So you don't just affect your direct family or your direct coworkers, but everybody else around you, right? And that yeah, is exactly. such a cool thing because it gives us the power to really make change. One of our clients said it to us really well that once they said, leaders bring the weather. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what they're trying to say. Yeah, we, we, we carry it with us. You got a cloud over your head that you've created a dark cloud with lightning bolts. People know it. Everyone knows it. And sunshine, everyone knows that too. So yeah, so that's the, that's part of the inner game. You know, there's a, there's another piece of it though, that I think is really important for us to bring into this conversation. And that's the, the patterns of the inner game, inner game and the behaviors that go with it that we've now in the field of adult development have documented these various uh, patterns or stages, if you will, of, of awareness or consciousness that adults go through, right? This is really important when it comes to what makes a leader effective. Uh, so there are, of course, there are skills leaders need to know, you know, without a doubt. Um, and we don't even need to create a list of those because it's really clear what they are. We've been studying those for a long, long time. What's kind of new in the last 40 or 50 years is how uh, the development of adult levels of consciousness, it's called different things, but stages of development, um, how those influence leadership. So if you, if you were to do a quick tour of the, of the sort of ladder of consciousness, if you will, um, when you're first born, you're a little baby, and you've, you've pretty much got no sense of me versus not me. Like you don't know that you exist really when you first pop out. I mean, I'm talking yeah. about within the first week, you're kind of looking around like an overwhelmed by sensory overload. And you know, you might see your own hand, but not know that that's you, right? Yeah. But, but very quickly, a human being starts to develop a sense of self and a sense of what is not myself. And in healthy births, the baby will become attached to the parents very quickly as, uh, somebody who they know they're in some kind of relationship with, right? Well, then as the kid grows and matures, you know, we've, Piaget documented the various stages of child development very clearly 70 years ago. What we used to think though, is you got to be 20 or 25 years old and you were kind of done, you know, the, the, the cake was baked, you came out of the oven, you started off on your adult life and that was it. And from then on, it was just, you know, get really good in your chosen field and get a lot of accomplishments. You'll get promoted, you'll get put into roles of leadership and, you know, good luck. Um, but the research now has shown us that, that there are 
five stages beyond childhood development that we tend to move through if we're on a growth curve as we grow, as we, as we mature. So the first is egocentric. And that usually happens hmm, mid-teens, early 20s, right? Where I say, you know, my ego, which is myself, I put that at the center of the world in the way I see the world. And everything in the world exists just simply to give me as much pleasure and as little pain as possible. Yeah. And if it doesn't do exactly that, I get very angry at it and I throw a temper tantrum. That's the egocentric way of being. But most people move through that pretty quickly. As soon as we get into college, as soon as we move into our first jobs, we start to realize, oh, we're not the center of the universe. <laughs> There's a lot of other people and they're all important too. And I'm now entering the world of organizations and the world of business or the world of healthcare or whatever it is. And I need to begin to understand what are those expectations of these organizations now that I'm living in and working in for what it means for me? Like, how should I use my power? How should I use my intellect? How should I use my relationship skills, my heart in appropriate ways? And I know your listeners can't see me doing air quotes, but appropriate ways means that, that I find out by scanning my environment and looking around and taking cues from everyone around me as to what's acceptable ways to use my power in this context. What are acceptable ways to use my intellect and to, to, to use my capacity to think critically and to say what's true and what's not true in this context? What's the appropriate way to have relationships in the context I find myself? And so very quickly, we become what's called a socialized self, like the self that I thought was the king of the world before. Now I realize, oh no, I'm going to put it within the bounds of the social system. I'm in. I'm going to do what makes the most sense here to be effective. And we learn to do our roles. We learn to lead from that perspective, but it's, it, and it, well, it's sufficient for 70% of everybody for the rest of their life to live a very happy life there. But there are some people within that group that find themselves challenged by bigger things to grow beyond those social norms, to begin to, they begin to, to get, for instance, leadership responsibilities that require them to feel their way between black and white. There's so many shades of gray, right, that are not quite as clean as a standard operating procedure, like here's what you're supposed to do. It's like, no, actually, I've got to figure out with my own values what's the right thing to do here. Oh, yeah. Or they start to feel an urge to create something in the world that, that is uniquely theirs to create. And their job description doesn't have that in there. And so they start looking more broadly for, okay, well, who am I really? And what do I want to give to my life, uh, give my life to? What's the cause? that is bigger than me and my own success, right? And as soon as we start to ask those big questions, we're moving into the next stage of consciousness, which is, as Bob Keegan calls it, the self-authoring stage. So I'm a self that writes authors my own story now, right? And, and that's a place where creativity really begins to blossom and leadership takes a, a major jump in effectiveness. So when I'm in the socialized self, or as we call it in my business, the reactive self, I'm always looking to make sure I'm doing it right and I'm not offending anyone. And, and I, I keep myself pretty limited. When I move into that self-authoring self or what we call the creative self, now I'm much more of an entrepreneur. I'm taking more initiative. 
I'm finding ways to, to bring new things into the organization. I'm finding ways to develop other people, even if they can't help me with my goals. I'm much more generous with my time, et cetera. And that creative generosity is what captures that next stage of development. And then there's a stage beyond that we call the integral stage, or as Bob Keegan would call it, the self-transforming self. So I'm always transforming constantly, learning and growing. And it's in that stage, it's called integral in our schema because it's the stage where we want to start fitting everything together, like all the parts that we didn't look at before, the hard stuff, the shadowy stuff, the, the stuff people would say, well, that's not, uh, that doesn't have a place here. Well, actually, it has a place somewhere, and there's some truth in this view and in that view and in that view. Let's see if we can't bring it all together, the light and the dark, the easy and the hard, the out in the open and the shadow stuff. And the integral stage is where we, we really start to be welcoming to various different perspectives, where uh, different opinions start to to find voices in our decisions. And because of that, we're making much more effective decisions organizationally. We move from me to we, to really being a we. The final stage, and then I'll stop so you can pick that apart no, a little bit. This is what we call the unitive self. And that's where the whole idea of self disappears. So, you know, some people argue that's not really a stage, but it's a state that we can temporarily experience here and there. And in fact, all of us have had that experience of the unitive moment where, you know, let's say you're, you're sitting with your headphones on after a long day's work and you play some music, your favorite music, and you just get lost in the music. And for a moment or two or five, you're just, you are the music. Like nothing else comes into your mind. You're not even noticing you're sitting in the chair. And it's, that's a unitive experience because now you've lost your sense of separate self altogether. And you've become one with the music. Right? We, and, and there's lots of experiences we have. You see a sunset. You see, you know, you look into your lover's eyes and you disappear in your own mind for a moment. And there's, you know, perhaps there are some people who actually live there all the time. We might call them saints. We might call them divine. But that upward trajectory from when we're children through egocentric to reactive to creative to integral to unitive is something that I think is actually built into the structure of nature. It's, it's an evolutionary process that is part of the evolution that has been happening since the Big Bang. It's the most refined part of that evolutionary process that starts with attraction between things like molecules, atoms, and then when they are attracted to one another, they connect, and then the connections complexify, and then ultimately in the Homo sapien, they become conscious. So this attraction, connection, complexity and consciousness movement is the evolutionary process that we're in the midst of. So when we think about developing leaders, we're literally working with forces that have been in place since the Big Bang, drawing us upwards into bigger and bigger states of consciousness, where leadership gets more and more effective at every stage. Wow, Dave, I, I absolutely love this. Um, I think one of the, the challenges that people have is 
is like you say, they still have this outdated mindset that once I turn, you know, 18 or 20, once I graduate from high school, that's essentially who I'm going to be, right? And who I am today and who I'm going to be next week from now is essentially just a product of who I've been in the past. But what you're saying here really, and like you say, it's just backed up by thousands and thousands of studies and research, right? That we can change literally until the day we die. A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Dr. Michael Mertzenich on the show. He was one of the first people to really discover this concept of brain plasticity. You know, he's like this 75-year-old mm-hmm. guy, right? He's you know, running against companies, learning stuff every day. And he was talking about how you can still train and you know, become smarter and better till that day, like when you're on your deathbed. So I absolutely love that. You know, and- there's, a, there's a beautiful book called The Grace in Dying. Wow. Um, that is by uh, Suzanne... Uh, Susan Dowling Singh, highly recommend it to you and to all your listeners. Um, and she was a uh, she was a hospice worker, uh, psychologist, um, nurse, and she she sat attended hundreds and hundreds of deaths, you know, in hospice. And and she studied developmental psychology, and so she as she was watching what would happen with people on their deathbed that if they were conscious in those final active dying stages, she found that that last, whatever it might be, three weeks, two weeks, one week, hours, accelerated this development process that we're talking about to the point where people began to experience unitive moments right near the end, where you know the, the, the pattern we just laid out that begins to happen at birth, but some things like a terminal diagnosis accelerate the process as long as it's the kind of disease that keeps us alert enough to know what's happening to us, that people started to have these mystical experiences right toward the end. And then when they would finally die, and you'll have to test this out for yourself when, you're, when you get the privilege of being with somebody who's dying, but this sense of, of a, a kind of a spiritual flower opening up and energy being released into the room in a way that is is really a mystical experience and she said she saw that happen so many times that she could deny this was a this was a pattern we will all go through wow uh, you know it's it's such a fascinating phenomenon to me i've had i've had lots of guests on the show you know that survived cancer heart transplants you know near fatal accidents and what all of them said is exactly that that like that's that trauma that they experienced was essentially this the spark for growth, right? It was that mm-hmm. that moment when they started to flower, when they started mm-hmm. to to create this intention really for their lives because they realized they've been living like this this egocentric life oftentimes, mm-hmm. right? But it didn't, you know, or maybe even the socialized life, right? Where like they were just looking on the outside, right? They were trying to win that gold medal because that's what society had told them to do, right? They were trying to make mm-hmm. more money because that's what they were conditioned to do. But then once they were, you know, on that deathbed or, or nearly on that deathbed, basically, and they had to reflect on their lives, what they oftentimes found is like, that's not really my purpose. Like, that's not really how I want to show up. That's not really how I want to live. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they use that as that seed for growth afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it really speaks again to this, this idea of being intentional about our growth. And you mentioned before, there's, there's these rituals that, that you use in the morning to become more intentional about how you want to live your life. So can you talk to us a little bit about how we can implement it to our lives in order to really you know, go up these de- developmental stages? Yeah. One thing I want to circle back to that you just said, which is simply a matter of emphasis, but it is sometimes the traumatic moments 
like the heart transplant or the the car accident or whatever the big disappointment of losing a job that can catalyze growth but there's also many 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 positive moments that also have the power to catalyze growth oh, yes. to, to uh perhaps less dramatic degree but equally as powerful and i think i think that it's the it's the ability to hold all of that the the growth of uh the natural sort of learning and um exploration of possibilities and discovering new skills and talents that that lead us on uh further and further over the horizon and then sometimes the traumatic moments that wake us up from a a sleep you know and i think both of those you know and most of our i think if we're all honest uh as we've grown older we realize that there's a back and forth between those things in our lives um, I think the the thing about these daily disciplines that is beautiful is that it's an intention to stay wide awake to those positive things um, so that I don't miss them, so that we don't miss them as we go through the day. So, you know, some people have said gratefulness meditation is a wonderful way to start the day um, by just sitting quietly and being thankful for as many things as you can think of in your life from the very tiniest little things like the way the sunshine is hitting the tree in the, in the front yard to a family or a particular big opportunity one has had or health or whatever, but just enumerating those things we're grateful for can heighten our sensitivity to all the beauty and the good that's in the world right now. And we begin to see, the more we do something like that, we start to see this inherent luminosity that exists within matter, actually, that, that you know, What's cool is all the convergence of the various hard, hard sciences with all the spiritual stuff that's, but we know that, that matter, the hard stuff of matter is actually not hard at all. It's pretty much empty space with electrical charges that are configured in certain ways, right? And, and, and it, but it's simply the way in which those, that, that energy has uh, converged and complexified to create what we call matter but it's energy in a certain form. And I think we begin, as we start to notice all that we're grateful for, we start to see the luminescence of that energy in other people, in, in nature, and, and, and that in and of itself helps us to see that we're part of a much bigger whole. So, so those, that kind of discipline particularly helps us remember that we're not a separate entity that has to go out and fight for its survival, though there are times when we absolutely do need to fight for our survival. But for the most part, no, we just welcome with gratitude those various aspects of our lives, including the suffering parts, the hard parts, the, the, the difficult parts. Um, so one of my recommendations to most leaders is to find, um, you know, most leaders are, are so busy. We've bought into uh, that myth that uh, more is more. Yeah. And, uh, and it's almost become a badge of courage for people. You know, when you say, how are you doing? And they say, oh, crazy busy, man. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, okay. And how are you doing in the midst of the crazy busyness that you have chosen? Oh, well, I'm actually, I can't breathe. I'm kind of tired. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, you know, just doing the same thing over and over again, but really fast. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and, and, you know, in order to keep from 
you know, having the same experience over and over and never learning from it, never growing from it, we have to build in reflection. We have to build in quiet. We have to build in space into our daily life in a very concrete way, not in a metaphorical way. We have to build in time to sit and allow the all the thousand thoughts to settle slowly into a hundred thoughts, to settle slowly into 10 thoughts, to settle slowly perhaps even into no thoughts. Every so often, sitting quietly and allowing a mental and spiritual silence to take over uh, and to rest in that place. And as we begin to rest in that place, we become aware of things we can't when we have a lot of static noise and to-do lists and voices of others and my own voices in my head just chattering away. And it's from that place of silence that we begin to sense a connectedness to a whole that's much bigger than us. There's almost a sense of loving belonging that's there in the silence that I can't explain to you very well until you experience it yourself. Um, we've had, you know, in, in most of the leadership development programs we do, we start every day with the group with um, literally no more than a minute or two of silence. And we have, to, we have to do it in a very simple way to help people who've never done something like that feel a little bit less uncomfortable. So we will, we will say, look, what we're going to do is sit for one minute. And I'll keep time with my watch. All I'd want you to do is get comfortable, close your eyes if you want, and simply notice the number of breaths you breathe in in 60 seconds. Just count those number of breaths. Ready? Go. Silence. People are just noticing their breathing. At the end of 60 seconds, I say, stop. How was that? And it's amazing. Just even that little bit for people. They're like, oh my gosh, my shoulders just relaxed in a way I haven't had them relaxed in a couple days. Okay. What did you notice about your breathing over that one minute period? It slowed down. Ah, okay, good. Let's do it again. This time, I won't keep time. I just want you to breathe that number of breaths that you said you got in in one minute before. And we'll do it for two minutes this time. So two times that number. Sit quietly. Ah, good. At the end of it, how was that for you? Amazing. Everybody's voice has a nice, small, soft quality to it. Something happens. We had one guy come the very next day after we did that. He came to us before we started and he said, I've never done anything like we did yesterday. I hope we'll do it today. But I got to tell you, I laid awake last night thinking about that two minute experience and wondering what have I been missing in my life? Because I've been racing from meeting to meeting, from task to task. He said, I, I haven't developed myself spiritually or I haven't developed my inner game as a leader. I haven't even paid attention to how I feel. Like, I don't even know how I feel. I can't, somebody says, how are you doing? I got to say, fine. Fine, yeah. <laughs> what else and, are you going to well, say? Right, fine. And what's the purpose <laughs> of this meeting? Okay, let's get to it, right? And, <laughs> and he said, now I'm starting to wonder, like, what have I been missing? And, oh. well, you think, that if that's all it took was two minutes of slowing down a little bit, you know? Uh, I think, of, like, a, you've probably heard of this concept of forest bathing. And if you haven't... Yes. Stay tuned. You'll start to notice it, right? Well, in Japan, they've, they've started to, in some big cities, Tokyo in particular, they've uh, taken some of their city parks and they've, they've created a path, a walking path, meandering walking path with wood chips through the more dense parts of the park. 
that they've mapped out takes about 10 minutes for an average person to walk from the start to the finish of the path. And they've, they're designated cell phone free meditation walks. And so you see a sign when you start that you're not allowed to have screen out. You're just, and you by yourself and you just walk quietly and just slowly through this walk. And that's it. And they've done studies on the front and the back end of that, right? Where they've taken blood pressure, they've measured respirations, they've measured galvanic skin response, all the sort of stress stuff that you might expect. And they found that 10 minutes of slowly walking through the woods settles all that stuff down. That's all it takes. And then they go back to work. Well, so, you know, part of that, that those disciplines of choosing, you know, is is making it a regular thing. So most people would say the morning is the best time to do that. Um, you can imagine in the morning, you sit, you spend 10 minutes in quiet, and you ask yourself as you review your diary for that day coming up, I've got these four meetings, great. I've got these things I've got to accomplish. One major decision to make, okay, how do I wanna show up in each of those meetings? How do I wanna approach that major decision? How do I want to, carry myself? What are the big assumptions I want to make sure that I'm remembering throughout the day? And you just choose those in that moment. Then you close your journal and you go about your day. Maybe you stop at lunchtime and you say, how am I doing? Okay, how do I want to recalibrate for the afternoon? Great. And then at the end of the day, if you can carve out another 10 minutes, maybe it's right before bed, maybe it's before you walk in the door at home and you say, how did I do? How did I do in those meetings? Did I live up to what I intended in the morning in each of those meetings? And sort of just notice, not beating yourself up for yes, I did or no, I didn't just notice. Okay, yeah, great. If you do that consistently, you start to become more and more conscious. And I think that's one of the keys to the inner game. Wow, there's just so much, so much gold right here. I think this, this process of calming down through meditations or just you know, walking through a forest, like you say, is so powerful because like you say, it literally takes two minutes and you calm down so noticeably. Right? And I think, um, I always love this quote by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he said, like, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the ax. And <laughs> I mean, that's really what it's about, right? It's about sharpening mm -hmm. the ax, actually becoming mm -hmm. more effective. So that in the time that we actually spend working, spend leading, spend doing whatever it really is in our lives, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can actually give it our best. Mm -hmm. And so I love what you're saying here about really, you know, getting intentional and developing ourselves to the point that then in those moments that really matter, we can actually yeah. show up and, and deliver, right? Rather than just sort of, you know, getting stressed out and running from meeting to meeting, right? And being totally overwhelmed because that's not a great way to lead or to connect or to make effective decisions. Yeah, it really isn't. And, and you can think about this reflection that we want to build into our, to our experience throughout the day as creating space for those new ideas to show up, creating space for me to observe things I might not have noticed before, to take in more subtler dynamics of what's going on in the room so that I'm more effective as a leader. Now, this assumes as you move up through those stages of development, a different definition of greatness to the point of your podcast, you know? Yes. The egocentric me, right, the early me, says, I'm not only am I great, I'm the greatest. <laughs> yeah. I'm the, I'm the only person that matters. <laughs> I'm the only, and you, all the rest of you are just peons <laughs> to serve me, right? Yeah. Then the reactive self, the next stage says, 
greatness is being really good at what I'm supposed to do. It's living up to the, all the values of the situation around me. It's fitting in well. It's, it's achieving the goals that I am given by the system that I'm part of. It's, you know, not making too many waves. It's all that sort of stuff that, that means I'm living up to the expectations around me. Greatness in the creative means that now I'm giving all the talent I developed in my reactive self to, to a cause that's bigger than myself. I still kind of own it as my vision, my, my business that I'm building, my life that I'm creating. But now I can see a bigger picture of it that involves other people and that they can find their place, their unique place in this vision. So now I'm, 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 I'm authoring, I'm painting the picture, right? When you move to the integral stage, greatness ceases to become anything about me. And it's about we. And it's what collectively can we do. It's, it's, it's an extension. It's, it's sort of a letting go of the self and greatness to, uh, to the greatness that all of us bring together with each other. A great society, a great town, a great neighborhood, a great organization. Um, and, and greatness is defined then in that sense by us caring and loving for all of us, including the marginalized, the wounded, those who feel on the outside that they can't find their place in the scheme of things. It's about how do we bring all of that together, right? Um, so I think, I think that's one of the cool things about this pursuit of greatness is that, that it keeps transmogrifying at each stage. You know, and there's going to be a point at which all of us, if we're paying attention, will see ourselves sitting in the family room, perhaps. Maybe if we're blessed, we got grandchildren or great-grandchildren running around. And you sort of wonder sometimes when you're in those situations, you look at the elderly amongst us and you say, oh, I see them just sitting there enjoying the scene, but not controlling anything, not whatever. Well, they're, you know, if they're healthy and they are present, they are just being present. That's what greatness means. It's not running things. It's not being the star of the show. It's just, just having a loving heart and opening it to the world. Yeah. That too is a form of leadership. And I don't ever want us to forget that. In the Western world, we've, we've so marginalized our elderly thinking, though, they don't have any productive value, which is just not true. It's a very limited understanding of what productivity is. Yes. You know, the elderly amongst us have I mean, who knows? It could be that the, the presence of the wisdom in the elderly in our population is one of the main things that's holding this society together right now. We may not, we may not know it or see how it works, but that intention that comes from a life of paying attention could be one of the key things to holding our society together and helping it continue to evolve forward instead of devolve backward. No, I love this because it, it takes quite literally like decades to develop this kind of wisdom and insight, right? That only comes through those years of traumas and pain and overcoming things and learning how to grow and evolve over time. And so I think soaking up those lessons from other people is, yes. is so powerful, whether they're 20 or whether they're 90, like it almost doesn't matter. Like that's soaking up this, this knowledge of other people. And, well, and here you are interviewing people like, you know, finding all the people you want to learn from. Exactly. I mean, I think that's a brilliant strategy for soaking up whatever wisdom you can get. It is, is quite literally the greatest tool I've ever found for my own personal development, just because I get so many incredible nuggets, like out mm -hmm. of every single conversation. And, 
And I mean, the, the whole, the whole reason for this podcast, right. is like, I want to inspire people to create a life that makes them fall in love with every single day of their lives. And at the same time, help them sort of inspire the world, inspire others. Because what I've realized is that once you start going after your dreams, once you start doing those things and actually becoming a life, right. It becomes, comes down to this emotional, like energy again, that we talked about in the beginning of the show, right. When you feel alive, the people around you will also begin to feel alive. And that's really this beautiful thing that it's not just this personal journey, selfless journey, but it's really a thing that like when you go on that, everybody else starts to feel the same. Everybody else starts to be lifted up in the same way. Wow. I need to interview you for this. (laughs) (laughs) That's seriously, that is very true. That is such an awesome lesson. And I've got to remember that, you know, I think as, as, and I think that's, you know, one of my mentors, um, through books is a guy named Thomas Merton. And, uh, and he was a monk at an abbey in Kentucky and wrote prolifically on this idea of a false self versus a true self. And that's, mm-hmm. that, that's another framework for saying some of the same stuff we've said, which is, you know, you could say the reactive self is a bit of a false self in the sense that it's, a, it's me living up to all the shoulds the things I should do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it becomes me playing a role in order to be successful. And most people can live a very happy life there. Um, but then they begin, if they have some introspection, begin to tune into that inner game, begin to sense that there's a deeper self that feels more true to who they really are than playing the role or roles they've been given. Um, that true self may be in alignment with some of the roles and not with others. And, and for that true self to stand up and say, you know, for the next phase of my life, I want to, I want to pair off those things that are not who I really am and pursue more of those things that reflect who I really am, what I care most about and what I want my life to count for in this world. And he would say, Merton would say, that's when the true self begins to come alive become free of the little box we've kept it in while we've been trying to please other people. And, and, and in some ways that's where freedom is. And when, when you're living in your true self, you're more free, you're more free in so many ways. And other people, as you said, are attracted to that and they want to be part of that. They want to experience that. They may not even be able to articulate that, but their intuition tells them, Oh, there's something about this person or that person, which is really attractive. And I think that's part of the power of creative leadership and integral leadership is that it's, it's attractive. It's, yeah. it's, you see somebody who's, who's pursuing a, a powerful purpose in the world. And, and you say, yes, yeah, something tells me that that's what every person is supposed to, or can do. That's the potential of a human is to pursue a powerful purpose that matters, that makes the world a better place. And that, that, intuition somebody has when they watch this person or that person do that calls to them calls their true self to become more of who they are right so i think that's the work we do in leadership development honestly yes we talk about leadership capabilities and competencies and skills those are certainly part of what the work we do with all our clients but to do those without doing the deeper inner work is to do our clients a disservice if we can't help them see that it's a it's an inside and an outside game and those have to be in alignment um, we could help somebody become a better 
position player in a corporation or in an organization, but not ever really discover the deep power of leading from your true self. Yeah, what you just said is so important. And I, I found this in all of you know the, the great mentors, the great leaders that I look up to in my life is like, they're so in love of life. And the reason they are is because they have that purpose. They have that mission and you can just see it in every interaction, right? They treat mm. people differently. They, they seem like on, the, on fire almost all the time, right? Because they're so on edge to make the world a better place, to impact other people, uh, to really create meaningful change in their lives. And you can really feel that fire, right? And so I want to I wanna circle back to something that, that you said quite a couple of minutes ago. Um, which is this idea that you know, most human beings will change with two things, right? It's, it's oftentimes these traumatic experiences. And it is, on the other hand, this intention, right? And so the, the reality, I think, is unfortunately that, that to this point, most people wait for trauma and disease and pain and suffering to, to finally wake them up, right? But I think everything that, that we're talking about here is to give people this alternative, that you don't have to wait for pain, right? You don't have to wait for trauma. You can, by setting those intentions, by getting deliberate right now and living from this, this beauty of what you want to create rather than the pain that you want to go away from, right? You can start to live from that beauty and create something that, that isn't yet there. And so tell us a little bit more about, you know, how do we set those intentions? Because, you know, you mentioned some, you know, values, you mentioned goals, you mentioned like how we show up. So what are some things that people should really, become intentional about and create, you know, just authentic and true selves around them? Mm. What a wonderful question. You know, I, I'll take it, I'll take it on first from a very practical point of view as somebody who's a senior leader in an organization that uh, if I'm, if I want to help other people to grow in that way that you're talking about, um, I've got the opportunity as somebody who has influence in the way in which work gets done, the way in which the organization is structured to help put people in positions, uh, meaning like give them projects or give them opportunities that put them right on the edge of their growth limits, right? You know, we, we might call it, um, you know, they need the presence of some kind of optimal level of conflict in their experience yes. to catalyze growth doesn't have to feel traumatic, but it does have to feel like they're just a little bit over the tips of their skis. And it's going to call forth something else than what they have just been doing in automatic mode day in and day out. And, and to be in touch with people enough so I know what this person's edge is and help them together with them find a way at work to give them something that challenges that edge. You know, if you do it too much, if you put them way too out over there, then everything shuts down and defensiveness kicks in and we draw back, right? It's almost like there's a green zone, a yellow zone and a red zone. And we're trying to help them step into that yellow zone where they're just outside their comfort, right? And stay there. And that's the key is to help them stay there long enough to help the transformation begin to happen. Now, from an individual point of view, I get to choose doing that as well. Right. So if I don't, if I don't have, you know, in any given moment in my life where I sort of feel like I'm able to coast and things are, I can keep doing what I'm doing and be relatively comfortable, but I don't feel like I'm growing. I've got a choice to look for some edge that I can pursue. Now, you know, if my values, if I have a, if I have a, a deep sense of what my purpose is in the world, which is, you know, to, to elevate the consciousness of the world around me, 
uh, for instance, that's kind of part of mine. There's a million ways I can do that. And some of them are going to put me outside my comfort zone. But since that's my purpose, that's my North Star, why, should, why wouldn't I get out of my comfort zone and pursue that? And by stepping out, I find that latent talents that haven't been developed yet start to emerge, right? So it's always that choice to, you know, it's, it's like uh, one of my previous mentors, Larry Wilson, used to say, our job as leaders is to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Get used to it because you're not going to grow unless you've chosen to be uncomfortable by choosing something that, that uh, leads you toward that next level of great contribution, if you will, right? Um, so what might that look like in day-to-day -day life? Well, it might mean I'm, gonna, I'm willing to have a tough conversation with somebody that I've been avoiding because I, I know it's going to feel awkward. I know, you know it's not going to be the easiest thing for me to do and I'm not skilled at it, but I got to do it, right? Because it's going to help them grow and it'll be better for everybody. Well, that's a hard thing to choose, you know, or it might mean I put my hand up when this next new big project's coming around and it's something I don't know anything about, but I really want to learn. So I'm willing to say, let me take that one because I'll learn my way into it, right? It might be as simple as putting my hand up in a meeting and going, you know, I have no idea what we're talking about and, and, and being vulnerable and telling the truth about where I am in a way that opens me up to needing others. I mean, those, those kinds of choices that the ego hates. Yes. My egoic self, my, my little Dave, <laughs> yeah. hates that stuff because it just makes him look bad. You know, like I, I spend, I spend my whole twenties and thirties polishing that ego, making it look like I got, I, I'm never surprised by anything. I got yeah. it under control. I know what's going on. And you know, it helps me. That helps me get along for a while. But in the long run, I learned that it wasn't actually true, that the egoic voice was not. And, and the only way to thin out that egoic persona, that mask that we wear in that socialized self, that reactive part, is to choose to be on that growth edge for the sake of something bigger than my ego, right? That's the vision, the purpose. Uh, another one of my mentors, Richard Rohr, is a man who has changed my life um, for the better, thankfully. Richard says that he prays, this is a Franciscan monk based out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He prays for a good humiliation every day. Wow. <laughs> so, so talk about an intention set that, in the yes. morning. That, that, you know, he says, God, give me a humiliation today that I can, that I'm, I can work through. I can find strength to learn from and then help me watch myself while I'm humiliated. So, I mean, that can be as, wow. as silly as, you know, forgetting somebody's name and saying the wrong name, right? You yeah. know how embarrassed you get when you do that. Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> it, could be, it could be some just little embarrassment, but it could also be something where you hurt somebody and didn't know that you did, and they come and confront you, but you have, and you have to set yourself aside. And, and, you know, I find that working with lots of leaders who are in, particularly knowledge-based scientific organizations, tend to have developed their sense of self based on what they know, their, their brilliance, you know? In my current client system, there are a lot of PhDs and MDs. I mean, people with both PhDs and MDs, right? And oh, these are yeah. people who, they, they, they know more than most of us will ever even imagine exists. 
yeah. in terms of knowledge. And it's easy for them to develop an ego that's based on, I am the one in the room who knows the most. And so, you know, for, for those folks who have their sense of self built on being the brightest bulb in the chandelier, it can be humiliating to say, I, I just don't know what to do here. And yet there's so many domains of life where we don't know. And what, what good does it do for us to pretend as if we do? So for them to, to approach their leadership work with humility, with a, with a sense of vulnerability, actually helps others in the same way you talked about, you know, people getting inspired by our inspiration. If, if we come at life with a humility and a vulnerability, it inspires others to also be vulnerable and humble. And in that place, we can be a we a lot more because we're not trying to prove to each other how smart we are. We can discover things that we would never discover when we both come at it from a place of learn how rather than know how. Yes. You know, this, this reminds me of a story um, really cool. So I was interviewing a couple of months ago, Dr. Gary Latham. He's been for the last 50 years now, one of the world's leading sort of motivational psychologists, right? And you know, really top of the top of the field for five decades. And so he was telling me to this day, anytime he writes a paper, he will send it out basically to the smartest people he knows in the world, right? The smartest psychologists and researchers. And he'll ask them to tear apart that paper, right? To literally find every single bit that like you could potentially, you know, rip apart and do exactly that. Because he knows that that is the only way to actually get great. And I just love that story because that's someone like really one of the best in the world, right? Really humiliating himself on purpose. So hard to do. Yes. That is so hard. I mean, the more you put into a project or a paper like that, the more it becomes your baby. Right. You, you, you know what? Like, <laughs> your baby is the most beautiful baby I've ever yeah. ever seen. You don't want someone going, You got the ugliest baby I've ever seen. Man. That's <laughs> right? not gonna fly. You know, that, so that's that's really courageous. You know, and there is so much about this this work of leadership that requires not the courage to be the one who charges over the hill, you know, and takes the enemy fire first. I mean, that has its place in certain military contexts, but, but really it's the courage to, uh, to open the new conversation that nobody wants to have or that everybody else has been afraid of, or to, to uh, name the elephant that's in the room that we're all not looking at, or to say, you know, what I care most deeply about in my work is this. Because often even just saying, here's what I stand for, here's what I care for is an act of vulnerability that requires deep courage. You know, so, so, so often we are told that it's only the voices of the people at the very top of an organization that count, right? That's the big message in a hierarchy. Power is concentrated <laughs> at the top. The ability to craft the vision, well, that comes from the top. The, the, you know, the decision rights, they all come from the top. And, you know, that's a model, an old, outdated, mechanistic, hierarch hierarchical, bureaucratic model of organizations that, you know, that served us well in the past when the environment around the organization was stable and predictable. Well, now we know with VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, that there is no stability around the organization anymore. And the old hierarchical framework of let's concentrate power and decision rights and authority and vision at the top of the organization, everybody waits for someone at the top to tell them what to do. That is so unagile. It doesn't work yeah. at all. It, you know, an organization <laughs> that has 
a lot of resources to burn can go along doing that for a while, but we're seeing in the news every day corporations that didn't adapt to a much more um, democratized view of leadership where anyone can lead from any part of the organization at any time. Those organizations that don't, don't open up to that possibility and, and loosen the structure so that they can be more liquid and emergent and organic, they're the ones that are the dinosaurs that go away, right? We can see that day after day after day in the news. The pattern is very clear. We know that that's true. So, so this, this idea of leading with humility opens up the field of leadership for all sorts of people top to bottom in the organization. Yeah, you know, to me, what this comes back to is really Carol Dweck's growth with a fixed mindset, right? This belief that, you know, I'm the, the know-how, right? The person that knows everything, that is perfect, that has all the knowledge, is the smartest, the greatest, the best, whatever it is. Oh, I'm the learner, right? I'm the kind of person that grows, that learns, that develops themselves, that gains new insight, that is willing to be like vulnerable and open and honest and say like, I don't know this, right? And the beautiful thing I've realized is that like, once you are the person, right, that says like, I kind of don't know this. Usually, you know, once you raise that hand, you know, five other hands usually go up as well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is really true. That's the be best kept secret is that we all, you know, most of us don't know, but we won't tell each other that for yeah. fear of the ego embarrassment that it causes. Um, you know, and, and that's another piece of just uh, sensing what's in the room is that, that because of this interconnection of our brains while we're in the room together, uh, if one person senses that something is, is happening in the room, it's, there's a good bet that at some level, many others in the room are also sensing that. So a leader has got uh, a vast untapped, uh, often untapped reservoir of systemic knowledge of what's going on in the room if the leader can create the kind of culture where it's okay, encouraged in fact, to articulate those intuitions that are popping up about what we might need to talk about next or what's not being said or the voice of this stakeholder group that's not in the meeting and how can we bring them in, right? So, so uh, you know, I think about one of the big roles of leaders these days is convening, is, is inviting the right parts of the system into a room to convene a meeting in which together we can create a picture of what's happening and what we ought to do that we could never create if we didn't have a true dialogue between all the parts of the system. Right. And, and so, wow, it means having not necessarily more meetings because a lot of meetings we have these days are just wastes of time, yes. <laughs> but it means having the right consequential meetings with the right people and the right kind of agenda convened for a purpose that everybody's excited about. Um, and I think that's, that's a big piece of this work. Now, you know, in my current client system, we talk about the roles of a leader in an agile structure, right? And more agile type organization that we just were talking about. And uh, Michael Lurie of McKinsey is one of my colleagues on this particular project has articulated so beautifully the four roles of a leader. The first being their job is to help the organization create the vision of what matters most. Visionary. Now, not created on their own. Yeah, I love this word help. Convene, yeah, help bring, bring the stakeholders together to co-create the vision of where we ought to go. And then architect 
is the second part of the role, which is, which is with others to design the systems and structures and processes which will help to make that vision become more than just a great idea on a poster on a wall, but become something that's real and is happening, that channels the energy toward the North Star, right? So you got visionary, you got architect. Catalyst is the third of the four. And, and a catalyst is somebody who does those things that releases the energy that's in the organization. Again, the most, the most untapped source of energy in the world is not petrochemicals on this, in the, under the ground. It's the energy people are bringing to work but keeping to themselves because they don't, they don't have a way to release that creativity and that, yeah. that sense of that true self energy. And so the catalyst part of the leader's role is to catalyze people to jump in and take hold, right? It can sometimes be symbolic actions that, that become the new narrative for who we are, like Martin Luther King doing the Birmingham bus boycott, right? Which that, that, that was a symbol or the march yeah. to Selma or from Selma to, to, to illustrate what energy released looks like. So that's the catalyst. And then the, the fourth role is coach. And, and that's the capacity builder role. So that we're working with each person, as we were talking earlier, again, to put them, to help them choose to put themselves on that cutting edge of their own growth so that they're finding new ways to contribute, finding ways to catch a line of sight from what they can bring to what the organization is doing. So you got visionary, architect, catalyst, and coach. And, and that meshes beautifully with the leadership circle profile, which is my company's leadership assessment instrument for looking at the various parts of what making a given leader effective or not effective. And you can see those four roles showing up in this leadership circle profile. So, you know, we're, we're always starting with that because we want somebody to get a good sense of how is their current mindset inner game showing up in their outer behaviors and how are others experiencing them? And then what choices does that offer them for how they might increase their effectiveness by changing the way they see the world and changing the way they're behaving in the world. Yeah. You know, what I love about the VAC model is none of these things say to, you know, take a whip and or leash and just, you know, hit your people <laughs> forwards, right? Like <laughs> don't, don't boss them around, micromanage them. That's but the Pharaoh really, model. Yeah. <laughs> it really seems like it is this enabling role of yes, co-creating that vision, but then almost letting people loose, right? Enabling them, helping them, supporting them and, in actually running forward, right, together as, as a team. And so I love this really collaborative focus of that. It's got a deep sense of respect for the other. Whereas in the hierarchy, there's very much of a patriarchal way of looking at, there's sort of a, a parent-child relationship at every level in the organization, where each level, when, when you look down from your perch, wherever you are in the organizational hierarchy, you see children who need to be taken care of and told what to do. And when you look up from every level in the organization, you see parents up there. Who, yeah, and grandparents and- <laughs> Right, right, who you need to defer to. Yeah. Well, again, that mechanistic way of putting together organizations worked fine. And in fact, it was a big upgrade over, you know, the more sort of craft guild way of doing our work in the world in some ways. Uh, you know, it, it enabled us to, to to use capital in a much more expansive way, which brought so many people out of poverty and into a, a and yet now with the interconnectedness of our global economy, 
with supply chains that are stretched all around the world with climate change that's going to disrupt those very same supply chains and migration happening and uh, you know you see so much change that now autocracies autocratic leaders are starting to bubble up and promise they can return us to a sense of stability by using military force and by reconcentrating the power at the top uh, which is exactly the wrong answer but that in order for us to to open to the opportunities that are in this more turbulent environment that we're finding we've got to think about ecosystems we've got to think about stakeholders we've got to think about them in an inclusive way that brings everyone to the table that democratizes leadership that helps to create a sense of deep respect between all facets of society so that everyone can do the best make the best contribution that they're here to make right and not be restricted not be suppressed not be oppressed um, i think you know that's how i see the deepest meaning of what we're up to so uh, if i can my 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 company's purpose statement so the leadership circle and full circle group which are one company with two different facets our purpose statement is to evolve the conscious practice of leadership to steward the planet and to awaken us all to our inherent unity. So there's three parts to that, right? One is that evolution of consciousness, which I said earlier in the podcast, that's it's built into the structure of nature to evolve to higher and higher forms with increased levels of complexity and consciousness, right? So we're working with that in that first part, but the second part to steward the planet. I mean, yes, we work mostly in, in, for-profit corporations. We have some work that we do with NGOs and some charitable, charitable work, but it's all about stewarding the planet because the way in which we do commerce, the way in which we work in an economic sense, you know, an economic, I mean, the word economy means to run a household, literally the Latin, right? And so, you know, when you think about running the household of the earth, so, to steward the planet. And it also has right now that very timely look at how do we do it in a way that doesn't destroy the biosphere in which we are living and depend on, right? Yeah. So, you know, we're getting more and more, uh, more and more choiceful about who we work with in the corporate world because we want to work with clients who are, who are becoming conscious about how do we use our business to heal the ecosystems around us not to exploit the ecosystems around us. So that's the second part. The third part is to awaken us all to our inherent unity, which is, you know, at that highest level of human development, we talked about that sense that we are all actually part of one living organism here on the earth. And to the degree we think we're separate, we're hurting that organism to the degree we embrace our dependence on each other. We can bring health and wholeness. And by the way, it may be that the carrying capacity of the earth is not being maxed out now. It may be twice, two and a half times the current amount of people on it. We're just living in a way that is killing off the biosphere because of the way in which we think of ourselves as separate and greed and profit are taking, right? So, so part of our work with leaders everywhere is to help build that sense of interconnectedness, that love for nature, that evolution of consciousness that brings the best out of any business that you lead. 
You know, I love that so much because it really goes above and beyond, you know, just making profit, making more money, being successful, achieving these goals. But it's really about sort of lifting up the whole, the whole earth, right? Everybody in it. Um, so I'm absolutely loving that vision. I want to shift gears here a little bit. Um, we talked before, you've been in this leadership organizational development game for, you know, the past 30 or so years. What has been your biggest challenge so far and how did you overcome it? <laughs> Mm. Personally, my biggest challenge has to do with the way I was brought up. Um, you know, how I, how I mentioned earlier in the reactive stage of our life, in that socialized stage, we, we pick up the cues for how we're supposed to use our relationship skills, how we're supposed to use our intellect, how we're supposed to use our power. In my particular uh, upbringing, I was raised uh, moving around a lot. As a kid, my you know we my my father was in the U.S. military, the Army, and so we moved frequently from base to base, from new community to new community. And I think I I look back uh, when I was in graduated from college one time, I counted the number of times my family had moved, and it was like 19 times or something. Wow! <laughs> so I mean, it was like every year yeah. plus on average. And so I was constantly being injected into new social systems as a kid, which actually helped me quite a bit to learn how to read a social system which kind of leads me to my current work in some ways, right? <laughs> but I also, uh, I also found myself struggling to fit in quite a lot, you know, trying to, 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 to learn very quickly, what do I have to do to be liked enough to be accepted into this next peer group or this next social group? And, and along the way somewhere, I, I learned that I better play it cautiously and not try to influence things too much, to go along to get along. So as a kid, I got very good at that. And, uh, and I fit in almost everywhere I went and I had a lot of friends, but I didn't really know who I was and what I wanted and, and what I stood for. So if you, had, if you had put a gun to my head and said, you know, tell me exactly what you're willing to die for or you're gonna die anyway, I would oh. not know, have known what to tell you. <laughs> you know, I would, I would not known, oh, this is what I stand for. This is what I'm willing to stake my life on. And so as that got clearer to me, as I got older and I began to explore my faith life and all of that at a deeper, uh, in a deeper sense, I became more clear about that. But the patterns of how do I use power and influence to get stuff done had never been developed because I'd always played it cautiously. So my biggest challenge was probably learning how to wield power in a way that brought the best out of other people instead of doing it in a way that made me arrogant, made me, um, you know, taking power over others as opposed to using power with others or giving power to others in a way that helped us both be more powerful. So, you know, in my first explorations of trying to really influence things around me, I was clumsy. I, you know, it was just like a clunky, skill that I hadn't refined. And so I think I, I was a bit alienating, a bit pedantic, a bit arrogant. And in fact, I noticed on my, my second leadership circle profile that I did on myself, my arrogance score spiked. And I looked uh -huh. back and I was like, well, makes sense. <laughs> I was trying to really stretch my wings and take a more powerful role. And it's, that's how I came across. <laughs> so to learn to use power in a way that, um, uh, is powerful and yet 
it's not about power over people, I think has probably been yes. my biggest challenge. And it's still a challenge for me. Probably always will be with me. Yeah, you know, that is so interesting because it goes back to this whole story we're talking about before, right? How like you you begin to fit into society and begin to be liked and everything, right? And at some point you have to figure out this own identity for yourself, right? Once you want to make the next step in evolution, you have to figure out, like you say, like what am I willing to die for or what am I willing to live for, right? Well, yeah, and, better question. Yeah, and that is that is such, an, such a difficult step oftentimes, right? And, and what I found is, it's interesting, right? Because I, very, I went through, I guess, a similar journey of, you know, I was super shy in high school, didn't have many friends, really um, was deathly afraid of people, really. Um, and about two years ago, I made this really complete switch, right? To the point where, like, I just started talking to, like, random strangers on the street, literally anywhere, to just, like, learn how to make friends, really, right? And what I found is, like, it... it I found it so easy to fit in, in the beginning because I didn't really know who I was, right? So I was hanging out with this crowd and with this crowd and I had like, you know, hundreds of people almost I felt like that I could hang out with. But what I found pretty quickly is like the same exact thing, right? I didn't know what I was willing to live, right? I didn't know what I was actually standing for. And so it was the step almost almost backwards in the opposite direction again of really clarifying like, this is who I am, this is what I stand for. And then choosing the people that, you know, you want to spend your time with rather than really going this broad thing. But yeah. I, 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 what a beautiful, what a beautiful transformation for you and how much courage it must've taken to start going up to some. Oh, for sure. <laughs> hey, can I talk to you? Well, okay. <laughs> uh, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, cool yeah. Thing is, yeah, but, was... yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, in this conversation, you're, you're uh, thoroughly a joy to talk with. And so in that sense, you have really developed that part of and opened yourself yes. up to, uh, you know, and I think that's the important, that's one of the important things to get about this journey of human development. Now, we, we are never who we are apart from everyone that we're in relationship with and everything we're in relationship with. So back to that sense of everything's connected. You know, I think about uh, my wife, Andy, who we celebrated our 36th anniversary. Wow. Uh, last month. And I, I can't actually conceive of myself apart from my relationship with her. You know, I've been married to her longer than I've not been married to her. And we have become, uh, we're still separate, you know, uh, individuals. And yet we've become something more than two separate individuals in a way that I can't untangle that. And then we have two incredible children, one who's 30 and one who's 26. <coughs> and and they have shaped us. And I, I'm now learning so much from both of them uh, and, and, you know, trying to understand what does it mean to be a father? And, and that keeps changing from what it means to be a father of little kids to father of fully functioning, successful adults out in the world. I'm still a dad, you know? And so all of those different influences and the friends we've surrounded each other with, you know, like I've been <coughs> having breakfast on Friday mornings with the same motley crew of friends for about 25 years now. Wow. Whenever I'm in town, they, they meet without me when I'm not. And we eat at this really tiny greasy spoon restaurant and there's no agenda. There's just being with each other and catching up on our week. And I think, wow, you know, I, I would not be who I am if it weren't for that small community of guys. And what a privilege. To have them as friends, you know, so and that's that's part of my sense of uh, the milieu that shapes who we are and how this inner game helps us to appreciate 
all of those various influences in that environment. Yeah, I absolutely love them. It truly is such a power in those social circles, right? And the people we surround ourselves with, like you said, there's this synergy that goes back and forth, right? And we can't completely separate ourselves from the people that we spend our time with. It's just impossible. And so it's important to, to really choose the right people in our lives. Now, Dave, we talked about a lot of you know, fantastic strategies, ideas, insights today. If you could give our listeners just one challenge to take away from this and you know, become better leaders and really master it in a game, what would be that one thing? I'm going to circle back to the, the idea of um, reflection and silence. Uh, there, is, there is probably no limit to the value that even a small dose of that can add to uh, a leader's life or anyone's life um, is, is to carve out some kind of regular time and put away the screens, maybe get a journal, maybe read something that's really deep and challenging to you, but then to sit in silence with no input at all and allow your heart and mind and soul to rest. Uh, I mean, we're so aware of the value of sleep at night, you know, to get eight or nine hours of sleep is what, like you, you, your brain can literally not learn. It can't create the kind of memory that needs, that we think of as learning, unless you have good sleep. Yes. And, and that's just one aspect of the rest. I'm talking about a meditative deep silence. And if we as leaders can find that place uh, to go to now and then where we can stand at complete rest, complete awareness and awakeness, but in a restful state, it'll eventually become part of the core of who we are in our true self. And then when everyone is running around with their hair on fire and there's urgency and, you know, it feels like craziness all around us, we can go in the midst of that busyness to that place because it's been we've been habituated to we know what it feels like and we can drop back into that and we can lead from that moment from that place to, i think that's probably the biggest thing i would say is needed right now in this crazy world of 24 7. yeah absolutely love that now before i ask my final question where can listeners connect with you or with your company online uh the leadershipcircle.com uh, we'll get you there. TheLeadershipCircle.com, all one word. That's probably the best portal for learning more about who we are and what we do. Uh, and I'm listed in there and they can reach, reach out there. Perfect. Now, final question. What is your quest for greatness? So what's that big vision that you have for your life and for the world? <laughs> I, I will tell you that it's forming up for me now as I consider, I'm 61. So that means I've got, you know, as I jokingly say, I'm preparing for the third half of my career. <laughs> and, and what I see as the most urgent need on this earth, on this planet, is to deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm going to give the rest of my working life to helping to raise the consciousness of the leaders I work with to be more sensitive to that whole ecosystem effect of our economy, our governments, our lifestyle choices, um, and, 
And for me, really pragmatically, that means helping people learn how to fall in love with nature again. Yes. So one part of my story I didn't tell you was that I used to guide wilderness trips, wow. uh, backpacking trips, mountaineering trips, climbing, caving, rafting. And it was in those kinds of environments that I, I uh, found people opening up to a level of uh, a sense of themselves and a sense of the whole that it's hard to help people wake up to that when they're in meeting rooms all day in air conditioned environments, never getting outside. And so somehow to, to help people explore nature and do it from a way that links it back to their work at work is really important to me. And so the last thing I'll say is that I'm going to push my own comfort zone a bit um, by uh, starting in May middle of May, I'm going on a 30 day solo hike. Wow. In the woods in uh, the Appalachian trail in the States. Ooh. And I'm just hike about 500 kilometers by myself and, and spend some time really asking some of those questions about my relationship to this earth and to the forests and how I can best use myself for the next 20 or 25 years to help bring some healing to this environment that we've so uh, injured. So that's my big quest. All right, guys, that's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's gonna set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gain. And so I really wanna challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life. So to really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now guys, at this point, I wanna ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider, you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.